Most of you are conscious that we have been spending our Sunday mornings in Matthew's gospel over the last couple of months, and we have been thoroughly enjoying taking our time to work our way through Matthew's gospel. And as we've been doing that, what we've discovered is that Matthew has so much more to offer than we would first imagine. And so this morning, as we come to chapter 11, we're about to read about John the Baptist in a manner that we don't often think of when it comes to John. And so Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing the 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to him to ask, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he is least in the kingdom of heaven. Excuse me, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading of his holy word. Over the last 15 years or so, most of us will be conscious that Greenville has been growing and growing at an accelerated rate. And the population has been increasing, at least it seems to most of us, year by year by year. And naturally, when you move to a new place, a new state, a new region, it takes time to settle in. Young families are asking themselves questions, where will I find a good doctor? What is a good school? How will I get to work? Where will I find a home suitable for us as a family? And so there's all sorts of questions naturally running through your mind. Now, if you move to the South for the first time, not only do you have all of these questions to ask, you also ask a little about the history of the South. You ask about our heritage and our background, and how things function, and you get used to a culture. And then you hear people with a strange accent, and that's just nature of life in the South. Now, allow me to go out onto thin ice this morning, and if you're not from the South, allow me to be the first to explain a number of their Southern-isms. I've come across them, and so I thought they were worth sharing. Now, I'll put them on the screen, then I'll walk you through them. Now, as you read this, you read it and say, Mr. Pigs, 
Mr. Not Pigs, O S A and R C M Tales, and you struggle a little. Now, if you're from the South and you read that, you will immediately recognize what it says. And it says, MR pigs. And someone else will say, MR not pigs. O S E R, C M Tales, L I B, MR pigs. And so it goes on. And it's a whole new language you have to get used to. Now, some of you are not there. Choir, you can see them glazed over back there, and they're not there yet, and you're still trying to work it out. And that's the fun of moving into a new area, isn't it? And one of the things you'll discover in moving to Greenville or moving to the South in general, it is an extraordinary, spectacular place to live and work, simply because it's filled with extraordinary, spectacular people. But you do need to give yourself time, time to adjust, time to assimilate, time to see the great riches and values of the culture. And likewise with Matthew's gospel, we need time to understand, time to appreciate, time to put all the bits and pieces together. And over these last couple of months together, I've been saying studying Matthew's gospel is a little like building a jigsaw puzzle. And most of you are fed up hearing me say this on a Sunday morning, so I'll be as quick as I can, that you put the four pieces in place naturally, then you put the ones with the square edges or straight edges rather on the outside. And last Sunday morning, we stepped back a little and took our time putting some of those straight edges in. In other words, we were building up a larger, greater image of Matthew than perhaps we had before. And last Sunday morning, we said this. In the early church, Matthew's gospel was used more extensively than any of the other gospels. That was one piece of the framework. We went on to say that Matthew structured his entire gospel most effectively. He has five main sections. That's another piece of the framework in place. And each section consists of events from the life of Jesus, samples of his preaching and teaching, and concluding, preaching and teaching, excuse me, and a concluding refrain when Jesus had finished saying these things. And we said last Sunday morning that phrase, or an almost identical phrase, not quite, but almost, appears in chapter 7, chapter 11. 13, 19, and 26. And so last Sunday, as we were busy putting this framework in place, as I said, we stepped back, had a greater appreciation of what Matthew is seeking to achieve. And as you come into chapter 11, we read very similar words after Jesus had finished instructing the 12 disciples. In other words, after Jesus had finished saying these things, the language is almost identical. So you know you're coming into a new section. You know you're coming into a whole new phase in Matthew's gospel. Now remember where we've been, and I'll do this ever so quickly. Chapters 5, 6, 7 were the Sermon on the Mount. The focus was on his teaching and preaching. Chapters 8, 9, and 10, there was a focus on his miracles. There was eight plus miracles, and certainly several more. And at that point, you had his teaching, and then a focus on his identity, 
very God of very God had come into our world. And so, that's where we've been over the last couple of weeks. And as we come into chapter 11 and we read the words that, fairly straightforward, Jesus had finished instructing His 12 disciples, one of the first things we ask is, why did Matthew use that phrase when Jesus had finished saying these things, when Jesus had finished teaching these things, when Jesus had finished instructing? And you're tempted to think, well, Richard, why on earth did he spend all this time teaching and preaching? Well, the biblical principle is this, that instruction leads to understanding. Understanding leads to relevance. Relevance leads to application, and application leads to transformation and growth. And in the midst of all of that, this is what I'm saying more clumsily than I would like, but basically the point is this. Jesus spent that much time teaching and preaching because He understood this, that teaching then moves, as we said, to understanding, to relevance, then to application, and it's when we live out our faith on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays, when we take biblical principles and take a moral stand on some of the most sensitive issues of our day, when we raise our families in prayer, when we live morally good lives, when we seek to live in holiness and righteousness, that's how we grow and mature. It is one thing reading Scripture on Sunday morning. It's another thing entirely living it out and applying it during the week, because when we live it out and apply it, that's when growth comes. That's when maturity comes. And that's why Matthew reminds us section by section by section, after Jesus had finished instructing the twelve, then a new section opens up, and that's what's going on here. And the section we're coming to focuses on John the Baptist. Now, most of us, I think, have a soft spot for John the Baptist. We know that he was a little different from the disciples. We know he was different from the Pharisees and Sadducees. And we know that John, in a very genuine way, had one foot in the Old Testament and one foot in the New. He dressed and spoke and had a diet like an Old Testament prophet. He lived out in the desert. But people were coming to him in their hundreds and thousands to be baptized in the Jordan. And the question then is, why? There was nothing outwardly attractive about John, but what John was teaching and preaching was this, that the outward observance of religious duty is not enough. Pharisees, Sadducees, the Sanhedrin focused on what to wear and when to wear it, what to eat and when to eat it, what to pray and when to pray it. And John said, no, 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 no. It's not about rules and structure and regulation. It's about relationship. It's about a relationship with the living God. It's about intimacy and transformation and walking with Him day by day by day by day. And people could see in John that living relationship. And so, as he preached on baptism, 
for repentance of your sins. He was God's prophet for his generation. And then things don't turn out well because we come to verse 2. And what do we read? When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Now, when you pick up that piece of the jigsaw puzzle and you look at it and examine it and hold it up in a stronger light, you begin to ask, now, where does this fit? How does it connect with what else is here? And then you begin to ask yourself, wait a minute, why was John in prison? What had he done? Had he run away with Senate funds? Had he been involved in, well, you can imagine whatever crime you like. And you ask, naturally, why was he in prison? Well, John was in prison because he called out Herod in public. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, let's remember over here, he had called out Herod in public. Herod had him arrested. But let me give you a little more of the background of John before we examine what's going on. And the background to John is this. He was the cousin of Jesus. Mary, mom of Jesus. Elizabeth, the mom of John. And when Mary discovered she was expecting and having her firstborn, she goes to see her cousin Elizabeth in the hill country in Judea. And you can read about it in the latter half of Luke chapter 1. And I like to think in my mind that as Mary and Elizabeth were close, I imagine Jesus and John were close. Let me explain what I mean here. Think of some of your cousins. Cousins are usually your first friends, the first to sleep over, the first to take you on an unforgettable playtime adventure within the confines of your backyard. No one will ever understand your crazy family like your cousins. And some of us have cousins who say, MR pigs, MR not pigs. <laughs> That's the way families and communities work. And I like to imagine that Jesus was the first to sleep over with John, John the first to sleep over with Jesus. They were close as we boys. And now John, who was a remarkable individual, he was so courageous, he publicly rebuked Herod Antipas, ruler of Galilee, for an affair. Herod had visited his brother in Rome began an affair with his sister-in-law, divorced his own wife, and lured his sister-in-law into leaving her husband and marrying him. And John had challenged Herod and was subsequently arrested. Now, here's where I really need your help. Choir, give me your full attention, your imagination, and put yourself in John's position. John was now isolated. John, one foot in the Old Testament, one foot in the New, the prophet for his generation, was now isolated. I imagine his imagination is beginning to speed up. I imagine that the frustrations for John were unbearable. 
The suffering is significant. Uncertainties and fears begin to overpower John, and John becomes a prisoner of his own thoughts and fears. He was a hostage to isolation and solitude. It is one thing to live out your faith when people around you are encouraging you. It's one thing to live out your faith when folks see you on Sunday morning and say, hope you're doing well, give your mom my best, I'm praying for you. But isolation and loneliness and an imagination that begins to spiral down is difficult to say the least. Now, having said all of that, you may well be now saying, okay, Richard, I hear what you're saying. I get the point. But Richard, how does this apply to us? How do we see ourselves in the pages of this passage of Scripture? Well, let me suggest this. Have you found yourself worried, concerned about a situation at work where false claims were made, management is involved. First thing you think of in the morning, last thing you think of at night. Or perhaps for you it's not a situation in work. Perhaps for you it's a marriage and there's difficulties and tension taking place in that marriage. Or for others of us, perhaps it's a case of a relationship turning sour and fractured and dissolves in front of us. Or perhaps when you find yourself in these situations, your minds go back to being 15 years old in the science lab, and one of the cool kids at the other side of the class refers to you as dumb and it impacted you way more than it should. And in those low moments when you're feeling it, you go back and you relive those moments, and you begin that spiral. And down you go, and down you go emotionally, psychologically, mentally, wounding yourself, telling yourself that you're nothing, that no one could ever love you. You will never amount to anything. And slowly but surely, you begin to believe that toxic thinking. I've been around addicts enough to learn a great deal from them. And sometimes you will hear addicts talking to one another and counseling one another, and one of them will say, and you've heard me say this before, but it's apropos this morning, one of them will say, you need to stop your stinking thinking. And that stinking thinking is what I've just described. You're wounding yourself, you're hurting yourself and telling yourself you will never amount to nothing, that no one could ever love you, and it goes on and on and on, and you end up being a prisoner of your own mind, isolated and mentally living in solitude and beating yourself up. About a year ago, I think it was a Saturday around lunchtime, Ruth and I were in the kitchen together, and a sparrow flew into the kitchen, came in through the porch, and we suddenly heard this frantic, frenetic fluttering going on up 
in the kitchen ceiling and we looked up and there it was just above the kitchen cabinets constantly bumping itself against the ceiling trying to find a way out. The door was open. We, of course, naturally opened some of the windows and it stayed up there for 10, 15 minutes beating itself up. And I thought, oh, maybe I should get a broom. And if I hold it up, it may hop onto it and I can very carefully carry it out through the porch and let it go. It was having nothing to do with me or the broom. It absolutely was not. Why? It was fluttering and frenetic and panicking and could not think, and all it did was wear itself out. And eventually it landed on the top of the units and sat there for 10 or 15 minutes. And then Ruth and I said, let's step out the way, give it room, and see what happens. We went to the other side of the house. We came back 45 minutes later. It wasn't there. We assumed it had simply gone off and was safe. Does that describe your mental attitude at times? When there's a problem in a toxic relationship, difficulty at work, and you're constantly fluttering, frantically knocking your head against the ceiling, trying to resolve everything around you, and all you're doing is wounding yourself, and you're doing it mentally, emotionally, psychologically. I came across a wonderful poem that I thought was worth sharing this morning, and it reads like this. Your mind is a broken thing. It runs, races, and paces, taking me places that consume me, distract me, tempt me to believe I am not good enough, nor ever will be. You've got to strive to survive, to thrive, to stay alive in this world of ever-changing, evolving ideals, images, idols, and icons. You have to work for your worth. Clean yourself up. Do more. Do better. Don't show weakness. Be tough. Try to be enough. Collect piles of treasure, trinkets, and stuff. Maybe then you'll be loved. Yet the mind is a broken thing. If unguarded and let loose, it can attack you and snatch you and trap you, leaving you stuck, self-obsessed, asleep, and enslaved. But if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Your mind doesn't have to be out of control. Those thoughts and loops and cycles can stop. You're not left unarmed. You have a tool to interrupt the racing, the pacing, the list-making, relentless, unending, repeating, defeating, distracting, disorientating, consuming, controlling thoughts. Ever been there? Were there last week? Tempted to be there next week? Well, here's my challenge this morning. As you begin to move into a brand new week, and please hear that, tomorrow morning begins a week that's never been lived before in all of history. 
And here's my question. What will you make of the next seven days? Will you spend your time wounding yourself, beating yourself up, reinforcing a toxic relationship that was over years ago? A difficulty that's out of control and you can't control? Put it down. Let it go. Stand back and say, Father, there are things I simply can't control. I am handing them to you. Go ahead of me. Answer me. Walk with me. Show me. And allow me above all things to stop my stinking thinking and to remember what John was told. And John was told the facts of the faith. Now, please hear that. He was told the facts of the faith. His disciples went back and said, Jesus was asking for you. And what's more, he said, tell John that the blind can see, the dumb can speak, the lame can walk. He is proclaiming the good news. Those with leprosy are cured. Those who are dead are coming back to life. Facts of the faith. Let me remind you of some biblical facts. You are loved by Him who knows every single thing about you, and He does not for a moment think of you as unlovable. He doesn't determine you or define you by your past mistakes. He doesn't look at you and think of, yeah, I know them, and I remember when they used to do this and say that. That's not how he sees you. Why? Because he is quite simply, and hear this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Please never get over the wonder of his love for you. Allow nothing else to define you. Allow nothing else to determine your future, but your walk with him. Do not emotionally wound yourself day by day by day, mentally going over it again and again. Put it in the past. Close the door. Turn the key. Throw it away. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. Understand that. Grasp it. No wonder Matthew begins a whole new section of his gospel with this focus on John. And the next time those thoughts start intruding and they come knocking at your door, you're not obliged to let them in. You don't need to surrender to them. You're not a victim to your thought process. You are a child of God who has you in the palm of His hand. He doesn't wind you up and let you go. He holds you every moment of every day. He forgives and cleanses and renews and refreshes and allows you to begin again. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. 
Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. That's where your thoughts need to be. That's where your thinking needs to be. Your focus needs to be on Him. You are not a prisoner to isolation and solitude because living within you is the Spirit of God Himself, and you need no more resources let me close with this. Circumstances, fears, imagination should not master you or determine who you are. It's time to stop the stinking thinking. It's time to break with old habits of the past, the jaded thought processes that only wound you. Give them up and focus on Him, and you can trust Him because He's got you. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this passage of Scripture this morning, and we ask and pray with all the sincerity we can that we will not slip back into old habits and tired, jaded patterns of thinking this week, Refresh us, renew us, enable us by Your indwelling power to live for You this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.